welcome to the very first episode of Injustice Talks, a podcast that was started by a group of students on the international development law and human rights LLM at Warwick University in the UK. So today I will be joined by my fellow students, Tariq, Rosetta, Katie, Zach, and Paolo, Grayson, Anise, and Ruby. And we will be discussing climate justice and injustice by critically analyzing the climate justice movement. So to start our discussion, I turn to Rosetta and Katie, who will outline what climate justice is. The movements for climate justice seek to address the inequalities and discrimination that are generated or fueled by the impacts of climate change. Therefore, a climate justice approach places at its center populations that are particularly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. At the same time, climate justice seeks to recognize common but differentiated responsibilities between countries with different levels of development. One of the first things that needs to be considered is whether the climate justice movement can even be considered a movement. A research paper I read from Martinez, Alia and others titled, Is there a global environmental justice movement? asks this very question and suggests that the answer is affirmative. As well as there's several different contestations, conflicts and groups mobilising over the world, these are appearing regularly and can therefore be incorporated under the umbrella term of the climate justice movement. In our class on agents of justice and injustice, we considered who is responsible to enact justice under conditions of injustice. Devoke spoke of pro-poor activism, advocating for the poor being involved in poverty reduction efforts. Applying this to the climate justice movement, this would seem to translate to those who are most at risk from climate change needing to drive the movement. Indeed, the notion of environmentalism of the poor has been invoked since the 1990s concerning rural and indigenous populations in India and Latin America, people who are dispossessed by TNCs. And even today we see those um, who are most vulnerable from climate change engaging in contestations for the preservation of their environments, which Zach will later explain in greater detail. Nevertheless, others such as Wettstein take a different view. Wettstein argued that MNCs are heavily involved in globalization and change, and therefore they should also be agents of, of justice. Applying Wettstein, it would seem that anyone who contribute, contributes to climate change should be viewed as an agent of justice within the climate justice movement. This could be TNCs, governments, and even the individual. Tariq will speak more about this as well. Thank you. Okay, my name is Tariq Khan, and I shall be speaking uh, about the role uh, of the responsibility of the state and corporations in climate change and climate justice and talk about their responsibilities, particularly from a human rights uh, viewpoint. So who is really responsible for climate change? There is overwhelming evidence, according to Amnesty International, overwhelming scientific evidence, that is, and consensus that global warming is mostly man-made. 97% of climate scientists have come to this conclusion. The responsibilities for climate change fall on many shoulders, of course, from individuals through uh, the daily choices we make to emitting industries uh, and to nations, but some are more responsible than others. Uh, according to the Journal of Climate Change, uh, there has been a piece by Richard Heed where he says that most analyses to date, including the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change structure, consider responsibility in terms of nation states. However, responsibilities can also be understood in other ways as well as done in the present analysis, tracing emissions to major carbon producers, shifting the perspective from nation states to corporate entities, both investor-owned and state-owned companies, opens new opportunities for those, for those entities to become part of the solution rather than passive 
and profitable uh, bystanders to continued climate disruption. Regulation, litigation and shareholder actions aimed at the private entities involved in the production of fossil fuels could imagine comparable actions uh, to that of the tobacco corporations, uh, which proved to be very uh, effective in dealing with those um, uh, entities. So as far as states are concerned, they have the obligation to mitigate the harmful effects of climate change by taking the most ambitious measures possible to prevent or reduce greenhouse emissions within the shortest possible time frame. States must also take uh, all responsibility uh, and all necessary steps to help everyone within their jurisdiction to adapt to the foreseeable and unavoidable effects of climate change, thus minimizing the impact of climate change on their human rights. They have an obligation to protect people from harms caused by third parties. States must also take steps to tackle climate change as fast and as humanely as possible. In their, in their efforts to address climate change, they must not resort to measures that directly or indirectly violate human rights. In all measures, states should respect the right to information and participation for all affected people, as well as their right to access effective remedies for human rights abuses. However, the current pledges made by governments to mitigate climate change are completely inadequate as they would lead to a catastrophic three degrees Celsius uh, increase in average global uh, temperatures over pre-industrial levels by the year 2100. People in countries including France, the Netherlands and Switzerland are taking their governments to court for their failure to establish sufficient climate mitigation targets and measures. Uh, in, as far as the human rights situation is concerned, according to Kumi Naidu, the Secretary General of Amnesty International, uh, quote, climate change is a human rights issue, not only because of its devastating impacts uh, and the impacts uh, affect the enjoyment of human rights, but also because it is a man-made phenomena which can be mitigated by governments. Climate change is clearly impacting our, our, our right to life. We all have the right to life and, we, uh, and to live in freedom and safety, but climate change threatens the safety of billions of people on this planet. planet. The most obvious example is through extreme weather-related events, such as storms, floods, and wildfires. Uh, it is also impacting our right to health. We all have the right to enjoy the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. According to the IPCC, the major health impacts of climate change will include greater risk of injury, disease and death due to more intense heat waves and fires, increased risk of undernutrition as a result of diminished food production in poor regions and increased risks of food and waterborne diseases. It also has an impact on the right to housing. We all have a right to an adequate standard of living for ourselves and our families, including adequate housing. However, climate change threatens our right to housing in a variety of ways. It has an impact on the right to water and to sanitation. We all have that right uh, for personal and domestic use and to sanitation that ensures we stay healthy. But a combination of factors such as melting snow and ice, reduced rainfall, higher temperatures and rising sea levels show climate change is affecting uh, and will continue to affect the quality and quantity of water resources. Corporations and businesses also have a responsibility to respect human rights. To meet this responsibility, companies must assess the potential effects of their activities on human rights and put in place measures to prevent negative human rights. This is an area that activities on their part 
uh, has been uh, most efficient. They must make uh, such findings uh, and any prevention measures public. Such responsibilities extend to human rights, harms uh, resulting uh, from climate change. Corporations and particularly fossil fuel companies must also immediately put measures in place to minimize greenhouse emissions, including by shifting their portfolio towards renewable energy and making relevant information about their emissions and mitigation efforts public. Fossil fuels companies have been historically among the most responsible for climate change, and this continues to this day. Research clearly shows that just 100 fossil fuel producing companies are responsible for 71% of global greenhouse gas emissions since 1988, which include investor-owned companies such as Chevron and Exxon Mobil, primarily state-run companies, that is, such as Gazprom and, and Saudi Aramco, and Sony government-run industries such as the former Soviet Union and China for its coal production. There is growing evidence that major fossil fuel companies have known for decades about the harmful effects of burning fossil fuels and have attempted to suppress uh, that information and block effort, efforts to uh, tackle climate change. Climate change is and will continue to harm all of us unless governments take action. However, its effects are, are likely to be much more pronounced for certain groups of people. For example, those communities dependent on agricultural or, or coastal livelihoods, as well as those who are generally already vulnerable, disadvantaged, and subject to discrimination. In addition to the human rights implications of climate change involving governments and corporations, climate change can and is exacerbating inequalities, especially between developed and developing nations at a national level, those in low-lying small island states and less developed countries will and already are among those worst affected. It's affecting uh, uh, between different ethnicities and, and classes. The effects of climate change and fossil fuel related pollution uh, also run along ethnicity and class lines. In North America, it is largely poorer communities of color who are forced to breathe toxic air because of their neighbor neighborhoods are more likely to be situated next to power plants and refineries. They experience markedly higher rates of respiratory illnesses and cancers. And African-Americans are three times more likely to die of airborne pollution than the overall US population. There is also disparity between genders. Women and girls are disproportionately affected by climate change, reflecting the fact that they are more likely in many countries to be marginalized and disadvantaged in a very serious way. This means that they are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate related events as they are less able to protect themselves against it and will find it harder to recover. And of course, there is inequality between generations. Future generations will experience the worsening effects unless action is taken now by governments. However, children and young people are already suffering due to their specific metabolism, physiology and developmental needs. And as far as uh, uh, inequality between communities is concerned, indigenous peoples are among the communities most impacted by climate change. They often live in marginal lands and fragile eco ecosystems, which are particularly sensitive to alterations in the physical environment. They maintain a close connection with nature and their traditional lands on which their livelihoods and cultural identity depend. So as, for, as far as the future is concerned, what should be done and what action can be taken. Climate change clearly involves a comp complex global set 
of both causal practices uh, and felt impacts, and as such requires coherent global action, or at a minimum, coordination across some critical mass of global players. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was established in 1992 to organize negotiations that eventually involved just about all the world states. In 1997, the Kyoto Protocol seemed to commit many of the world's developed countries to reductions in the absolute level of greenhouse gases that they emitted by 5.2% overall by uh, 2012. But Kyoto uh, failed to, live, to deliver much, of, uh, much in the way of actual reductions, sadly. The world's largest emitter, the United States, did not ratify the agreement which impose no obligations at all on developing countries. China is another example of non-compliance. These are two of the states that, that cling most tightly to a notion of sovereignty that cannot be distinguished, diminished by global governance. After Kyoto, uh, we had the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change process and expectations centered on the 15th conference uh, of the parties, or, or as is known as the COP-15 in Copenhagen in 2009, when representatives of 190 states gathered. What happened at the 11th hour was that in, Copen, uh, was that in, in Copenhagen, uh, uh, this, this uh, uh, meeting was supplanted by uh, the G2 uh, uh, meeting between China and the United States, two of the most problematic participants in the prior negotiations. And when it comes to the very idea of global governance in general produced, uh, they com combiningly produced a Cape Copenhagen Accord with no binding targets for anyone and no enforcement mechanism for the weak targets that were proclaimed. While most countries agreed to take note of the accord, few did so with any enthusiasm or with any intention to do anything much in consequence. This just demonstrates the very weak international climate regime uh, that it leaves in place. Academics, for example, academics from the Oxford Handbook uh, on climate change make a number of suggestions. Behrman suggests a number of ways to strengthen the regime, that's the international climate regime, including the establishment of a World Environment Organization on par with the World Trade Organization a, a strengthening rather than abandonment of the UNFCCC itself and a stronger institutionalized role for civil society organizations, many of which push for stronger action on the international stage. Young suggests institutionalization of fairness principles of a sort that would induce more serious participation from China and key developing countries. Harris suggests that a cosmopolitan interpretation of fairness might be a circuit breaker in international negotiations. China would then have more credibility uh, when it demanded that developed nations commit to more effective emissions reductions. Young also suggests more attention to intersections with other regimes, such as that for international trade, in a way that would induce more mitigation and perhaps an enhanced role for effective uh, minilateralism negotiation among a small number of key parties, representatives of those likely to suffer mostly from climate change are also uh, at the table. But, uh, 
Baber and Bartlett suggest that a common law approach to the establishment of international environmental norms may be just as productive as negotiation of international treaties. So finally, uh, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, they say that really the solution lies in doing two things. The first involves cutting emissions uh, and the second involves removing carbon dioxide from the environment. Scale, speed and cost are the main barriers to all of these uh, approaches and the technologies that are involved in them. In the United States, strong state and federal level policies and large scale investment in research in development are crucial. And of course, uh, a similar approach would be required from other uh, developed nations. So leading on from Tariq, I will now highlight the key agents of justice that we will be looking at during our discussions. Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future are arguably the main actors that have come to our attention in recent years. Both began in 2018 with Extinction Rebellion or XR's declaration of rebellion against the UK government and a series of non-violent actions and acts of civil disobedience that followed, which saw trees being planted in the middle of Parliament Square and a large pink boat with the words tell the truth written across its hull, which was used to block Oxford Circus for five days. On the other hand, Fridays for Future began with Greta Thunberg's school strikes, which have since become um, a global initiative and a global movement with global climate strikes being organized across the world. We will also be looking at some additional agents of justice, including Intersectional Environmentalist, which began after the Black Lives Matter protests, leading on from the post that was created by the movement's founder, Leah Thomas, which read Environmentalists for Black Lives Matter and quickly went viral on Instagram. The COP26 Coalition is another group that Katie will be looking at, particularly highlighting their recent event on climate justice called From the Ground Up. We will also include a link to the webinar recordings from the event in the show notes. Rosessa will explore Friends of the Earth, the Wretched of the Earth Collective and Women Warriors to discuss intersectionality, while Grayson will highlight the work of the Climate Justice Alliance in her exploration of colonialism, racism, climate and capitalism. Finally, indigenous movements such as the Seba Alliance and Standing Rock will be examined by Zach and Ruby. Now we've considered who the agents are, I thought a good place to take the discussion would be to consider exactly how the climate justice movement has been framed. As Emily's just spoken about, last month the COP26 coalition held a variety of online events on a range of topics, from fast fashion to how trade deals can contribute to climate change. One session that was particularly relevant was named Framing Climate Justice, and it was a presentation on the findings of a research project that the coalition had undertaken from early 2019 to early 2020. The aim was to try and find out how the climate justice movement had been communicated to the general public by asking them a series of questions and hosting interviews with the purpose of reshaping the climate justice movement as a result to better deliver its message. The project delivered interesting results, a couple of which I'm going to talk about. Firstly, whilst the members of public had generally heard the term climate justice, most people spoke of issues like plastic consumption and fossil fuel emissions in isolation. However, there was kind of a lack of cognitive association between climate change and climate justice and its underlying causes, such as colonisation and capitalism. 
Furthermore, the research found that the extinction or resource depletion narrative, which we can see adopted by organisations like Extinction Rebellion and also figures like Greta Thunberg, can be powerful and hard hitting. However, ultimately, it often leaves individuals feeling quite helpless and that their own actions can't really make a substantial difference. These two main findings have been noted by the coalition, and as a result, they've been trying to make a new way of reframing the movement to generate a more effective message. They're now trying to reframe um, the movement and to try and explain the structural, structural causes of climate injustice by using metaphors such as the idea of a, um, a shared meal representing the economy, where some people eat more than others, therefore they should be paying the price more. The other suggestion as a result of these findings was to not rely too much on the emergency framing of crisis and doom and instead emphasize the role of solidarity. Projects like this seem quite necessary to me, not just for the climate justice movement, but for all social movements, because we need to evaluate what are the successful parts of the movement and what's holding it back from achieving its aims and encouraging the public. I think that's really interesting about the metaphors, Katie, and I just wondered if you think they're effective, because I was looking at some other movements to Extinction Rebellion and they use water as a metaphor, they use a beehive, and I've just wondered with this eating, this, what was it, the plate? Yeah, I think the, the way they described it was like, if you went for a meal with some friends and you say, oh, we'll like split the bill or something like that. But obviously some people might end up having like more food than you, like a starter and a main. And I think they're quite effective because it really relates it to everyday experiences. Sometimes when you use quite um, advanced terminology, it really loses the attention of the public because they might not have um, you know legal knowledge or like knowledge about like economic terms. So I think it is quite effective and it'd be interesting to see what the take up would be. So I'm going to be looking at the intersectionality of the climate justice movement. Many activists are now calling for an intersectional approach to tackling injustices. The term intersectionality refers to how different forms of social identity, such as race, ethnicity, gender, class, and sexuality overlap, particularly in the experiences of marginalized groups that often face multiple layers of oppression. Friends of the Earth, a climate justice movement, identifies climate justice as a means to addressing the climate crisis, whilst also making progress towards equity and the protection and realization of human rights. There has been a demand for an intersectional climate movement and climate policy, including decolonial, queer, feminist and ecological perspectives in particular. Within the Global South and the colonialized North, women, LGBTIQ and other marginalized communities are the first to suffer and die in increasingly common climate related catastrophes. Climate change places women and girls at a heightened risk of harm, from unequal access to healthcare and resources to a high risk of um, sexual violence. Akemeni and Asantiwa show us that anti-colonial resistance has long been interwoven with environmental protection. Indigenous, Black, Global South and radicalized communities have continuously fought for land rights against large-scale deforestation and, source and resource over-exploitation. Women and LGBTQI people have also been at the forefront with sisters Canis and Mahouk Manuel of the group Women Warriors were on the fr front line of resisting a crude oil pipeline expansion on territory in the northern part of Turtle Island. So instead of neatly dividing people into distinct categories, it's important to recognize how overlap overlapping identities can affect how they experience oppression. The climate justice movement understands the broad perimeters of social difference, but also have to have the flexibility to adapt and change. Wretched of the Earth is also a grassroots 
collective for indigenous, black, brown and minority groups and individuals demanding climate justice and is a very good example of the implementation of intersectionality within the climate justice movement. Uh, we think uh, about climate change and climate related catastrophes as one of the maybe the most democratic issue that uh, we have in current times just because uh, environment and environmental issues uh, concern everyone at the same level. Um, but we see that, that from a, a practical perspective, this is not actually true and accurate because there are some people living in some countries who are much more affected by these climate issues than the, the richest people living in the richest countries, which in most cases are the responsible for uh, these worsening conditions of, uh, of nature. And I'd like to underscore uh, a practical example from which is uh, the one of the imperial powers for definition, uh, which have uh, a huge uh, power uh, in order to cope with uh, these climate-related uh, catastrophes, um, both for their, for thanks to their culture, because we know that Netherlands, for geographical reasons, was built out of uh, uh, sea, uh, out of water, so they have a huge water management culture. Um, but uh, apart from this, these reasons, the economical power that Netherlands had plays a focal role in this uh, game against uh, climate uh, change. And for example, we saw that in in the last years, uh, Netherlands uh, built. Um, a new dike, uh, which cost is uh, which cost is estimated uh, around 158 millions of uh, of dollars, and we we can clearly understand how um, countries uh, of the third world cannot afford such an expense in order to cope with the issues they are going through anyway. Um, and we can, from this perspective, having said that, we can uh, focus on what Holger uh, was saying, as uh, Ruby will explain uh, later, how the economic resources of the distribution could be uh, important in order to try to uh, 
build a level play field uh, in, uh, when coping with climate-related uh, issues. Um, taking a cue from the United States uh, example, for example, uh, we see that um, the, the amount of money is not the only element playing a role in, uh, in this challenge because, for example, uh, United States do not have the same water management culture as Netherlands people, as Dutch people do, as we were saying beforehand. And as a consequence, the United States do not have either the institutions in order to, um, to challenge and to go through this, um, this management, um, just like in, uh, uh, in Netherlands, uh, do, uh, and these institutions are called the water shopping. Uh, which are uh, tasked with preventing uh, floods and um, finding a new solution to the steel level rise. Um, this, this is not uh, going to happen, of course, as we were saying, uh, in the third uh, world countries. Um, and as a consequence, we uh, see that uh, even more and more people are getting displaced from their own uh, homelands, uh, from their own farmlands, and they sometimes do not have a place uh, where to live, and in other cases they do not have uh, means in order to survive, to work, and to and and so to survive, and they. Um, and they are forced to go uh, anywhere else and, and to find uh, uh, another solution away from their verify how this uh, phenomenon is impacting the, the entire world. Uh, we can just list uh, a couple of, uh, of numbers. Uh, in the middle of the 90s, there were about 25 million climate refugees, and uh, it, it was estimated that by 2050, uh, the number will increase to uh, 150 and to, or 200 million. So these are huge and worrying uh, numbers that should create high a great concern about this, this topic. And according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, more than 42 million people were displaced wholly in the Asian continent and in the Pacific zone uh, during 2010 and 2011. Just, we are speaking about just two years. It's a huge toll of people who got displaced. Uh, so in the uh, 21st January of 2020, the Human Rights Nation uh, Human Rights Committee um, released a groundbreaking judgment which established the principle of non-refoulement 
for uh, uh, refugees uh, who, who are escaping from climate um, catastrophes. Um, bearing in mind that the 1951 refugee conventions defines a refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to return to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race religion nationality membership of a particular social group or political opinion so we say that during the united the united nations uh, human rights committee in a larger way this uh, definition because uh, climate refugees are not persecuted by anyone but they are just unable to stay or to uh, in their country or to return to their country if they uh, went uh, away um and this point arises uh, some questions because it's true that maybe it's unavoidable to host them because by now it's late to save uh, some countries, some places. I mean, if the uh, sea level is rising by e three or four centimeters per year, we understand that it's a really bad situation and it's really difficult to pull a plug on it uh, now. But we should think about what are the implications of this non-refoulement principle. We just include them in, uh, in our totality without taking into consideration their own totality. Indeed, we maybe think that their own totality is not worth being taken into account or to be saved. And that said, uh, that it doesn't uh, do justice at all. I will look into indigenous people in climate movement. Personally, I think to realize more ambitious goals will require the continued evolution of effective climate movement led by organizations committed to a justice-centered perspective. Climate justice movement, as we have seen, highlights the experience and demands of people around the world who contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions, but live with the most serious consequence of raising climate chaos. As an emerging movement, climate strategies unite three distinct elements with rooms in particular regions of the world. Some of the most compelling voices are those of indigenous people, mainly in the global south, who have raised crucial demands at the UN and other settings emerging from their community's vulnerability to climate destruction. It may be too late to achieve uh, environmental justice for some indigenous people and other groups in terms of avoiding dangerous climate change. People in the indigenous climate justice movement agree resolutely on the urgency of actions to stop dangerous climate change. However, the qualities of relationships 
connecting indigenous people with other societies, government, NGO, and corporations are not conductive to ordinary action that would avoid further injustice against indigenous people in the process of responding to climate change. The required qualities include, among others, consent, trust, accountability, uh, indigenous tradition of climate change, feel the very topics of climate change as connected to those qualities. The colonialism and capitalism failure to reference or establish those qualities of kinship relationships across societies. While qualities like consent may be critical for taking ordinary actions justly, they require a long time to establish or repair. Uh, so it's worth considering that avoiding environmental injustice against indigenous people, whether connected to exposure to dangerous climate change itself, or to harms streaming from how certain societies choose to mitigate climate change. Their territory is being exploited. Their children are getting sick by poison water and the animals are breathing. Part of why it's too late has to do with how urgency and um, uh, expressed problematically in climate change media, literature, publicity, education, and research. Um, take Bolivia, for example, like other countries in the North, South, and um, is beginning to feel the direct effects of climate change. In Bolivia, Amazon re regions, uh, loonings have witnessed several drums in the highlands, the main glaciers that provide drinking water are shrinking. It's why that president of Bolivia has proposed the policy reform agenda love of um, creative proposal emerging from poor countries and more specifically from indigenous people who are spinning up their demands and from a national to an international uh, level. Uh, also in a lot of America, um, Organizers for Ways of and Environmental Justice bring the experience of their historical room in the uh, climate movement, a lived understanding of the effects of climate change on communities, and accidental link to other climate movements around food, healthcare, transportation, and other fundamental social needs. Uh, and in Europe, the movement's primary focus is on the nature of climate crisis and is linked to a uh, historically fruit uh, in the global justice movement of the late 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, however, indigenous people often saw that the relationships they have with other societies are lacking in certain qualities. For example, uh, indigenous people concerned about ongoing disrespect against their consents to oil and gas products, the distrustful behavior of nations seeking to dispossess their lands through uh, forest conservation or hygiene power, and the failure of accountability in governmental programs that seek to um, foster clean energy development or community resettlement. Therefore, governments and lots of different groups would often uh, overlook indigenous people's needs and demands, so they become one of the most vulnerable 
groups in the world while facing climate change? Uh, in the light of what uh, Zach said, so if we can consider the economic reparation and the displacement of these people uh, that are two main means that governments propose in order to do justice, if we can consider these uh, reparations elements as a real means to the justice or if it's not. So I guess who would be making the reparations to who exactly? Is that one question that comes up from that? Yeah, if we we say that if if we draw or uh, their land resources or we just their own lands and we in order to do justice, we just propose them. We are going to give you a lump sum of money just to economically repair uh, your loss. But we don't understand that their loss is not only in economical terms, or maybe the economical terms are just the last concern. I'm just wondering if this can be considered doing justice or absolutely not. And I think that this is the, the answer, but we can. I feel like it can seem kind of insensitive and offensive, actually, when some companies will, if you see the court cases, they'll end up paying money, um, you know, to an indigenous tribe or something for like shell, like for oil spills and things like that and logging. Um, when really it's it's only a fraction of the money that they make per year through their businesses. And also they're not showing any sensitivity to the like uh, value of the land and not just the economic terms, but also like cultural terms and for the, the communities that live there. Yeah, I mean, and just leading on from that as well, I feel like reparations in monetary standards are really only reinforcing our colonial standards of success, which come from like capitalist gain and like profit. And, and you're ignoring anything else that might be a part of it. It's very like... Um, essentialist like going down one road you're not taking into account all of their spiritual spirituality that they lost all of their moral gains anything like that okay so i'm going to be talking about the relationship between climate and racial justice um so here you have inherent leaks of structural inequality um due to colonialism and capitalism you have this massive presence of resource theft um this kind of western idea that land is for taking and not for protecting um, there's a quote from Elizabeth Yampierre, who's the co-chair of Climate Justice Alliance, um, that I would like to read aloud. Um, Climate change is the result of a legacy of extraction, of colonialism, of slavery. A lot of times when people talk about environmental justice, they go back to the 1970s or 60s. But I think about the slave quarters. I think about people who got the worst food, the worst health care, the worst treatment, and when freed, were given the lands that were eventually surrounded by the things by things like petrochemical industries. The idea of killing black people or indigenous people, all of that has a long, long history that is centered on capitalism and the extraction of our land and our labor in this country. Um, as we've seen, and especially in the data coming from the United States, the COVID-19 pandemic has affected black or nine white populations far worse. Um, we can categorically can attribute this to structural inequalities such as lack of resources in communities. 
Um, the result is very much the same when these communities are faced with natural or man-made climate disasters, such as the increased severity of hurricanes due to climate change or poor air quality due to factory zoning. Um, links between the movements. So for example, Black Lives Matter and the climate movement, um, these movements are similar uh, in many ways, especially in terms of what's being asked. Um, similar to ecofeminism, the movements are fighting against the extraction, exploitation, and degradation of resources, whether it be the environment or the black body, or if you will, they're fighting for a change of system. Um, so environmental racism is kind of this idea that comes up when you combine the movements or um, just the terms. Um, when the protests for BLM and George Floyd arose back in May, many of the signs read, I can't breathe, which was something repeated by Floyd multiple times before his tragic death at the hands of police brutality in the States. Um, in a seemingly different sense, you also, you also have places in the States such as Cancer Alley in Louisiana, where black people can't breathe because of structural inequality or racist, uh, sorry, environmental racism, which in this case is toxic air and cancer as a result. Um, you also have the use of environmentalism to further inequality. Um, older sources of this could be seen as the links between fascism and ecology, such as the Nazi ideology or social Darwinism. This idea that there were um, there was a science or nature-based structure of man. Um, also, the um, conservation of land in the U.S., particularly when Teddy Roosevelt um, conserved 250 million acres of quote American wilderness. Um, which ultimately expulsed Native, Native Americans in mass in the name of environmentalism and conservation. Um, more recently, you have eco-fascists whose ideologies have different origins, perhaps overpopulation by fault of the global south. Um, you have ideas of blood and soil uh, or natural order. Um, all, these, all of these ideologies um, are racist in nature and genocidal as a result. Um, in terms of finding justice, the um, movement that I mentioned earlier, Climate Justice Alliance, for example, um, is looking to shut down what they label as the extractive economy and highlights a just transition that promotes local control of resources and creates a regener regenerative economy instead. Um, I find this to be a good example of finding justice within our actuality, whilst also transforming it into something we might look as, um, as a more just actuality. Okay, so I was looking at greenwashing and fast fashion. And when I first looked at greenwashing, can't lie, didn't exactly know what it was, just sort of thought it was a term that was thrown out there. So what do you guys think of when you think of greenwashing? If you can think of like a picture, what do you imagine? Okay, so say you walk into a supermarket and you see like eggs and, you, and, you, and one has a picture of a chicken on a field in a farm with a barn in the back and the other's just green packaging with the words free range chicken eggs. Which one would you be more inclined to pick up? I definitely feel good about the green. Would you? Because okay. mm. they did a study actually, and they felt that, well, I can't, I don't know the exact source, but they said pictures of barns on packaging, for example, chips, food, like eggs and things, seem to give people an image that you're getting a sense that the chicken is free and happy. And so it paints a picture to you that makes you feel better about buying that product. So then when you go in, you're like, oh, I'll pick up that product because it seems like I'm I'm doing something for the environment. And that's greenwashing in essence. It's when a company or organization spends more time and money 
are marketing themselves as environmentally friendly then on minimizing their environmental impact so really all they've done is said we'll stick a chicken on the packet and now you're going to think that chicken's happy and farm and all the chickens that those eggs have come from Mm -hmm. are just like this chicken running free on a farm even if it said caged chicken eggs on the on the um carton so it's so interesting to think that that companies have that much power in our subconscious that when we go into a supermarket and we see things like this it makes us feel just a little bit better and like you were saying ruby as well when you see green for some reason when we see anything green like packaging like a lot of it is to do with shampoos and conditioners if you see green shampoo and and conditioners you somehow think it's a more natural product or it comes from more natural sources and so you're more inclined to buy it and i thought that was quite crazy to think of really so that leads me on to well why is that bad (laughs) you know if anything it's just a ploy used by uh, companies to say buy my product which in our capitalist society is something that we promote if anyone took a business module so um why is it a big deal well one you're deceiving customers aren't you you're saying oh well buy this product it's it's free uh, people they're buying it because they think it's a free rent free range chicken egg it's not and so they're just sort of being complicit in an industry that they don't want to be complicit in or actions that they don't want to take part in so it's it's then supporting that company to continue to harm the environment because you're doing something that the consumer doesn't want you to be doing but they think that you are um and so in that sense because the consumer is going after a company that they think is doing good good companies that actually are doing good are getting lost in that sea of greenwashing per se. Um, And it can be difficult for them to see the forest for the trees. And I think that's what's the main issue from my research when I was looking at it was that consumers are feeling so overwhelmed when they go into a supermarket because they don't know what to look at anymore because everything is being, this this marketing ploy is being used by so many different companies that it's hard. They've got chickens everywhere. So it's, Another thing is that it's so easy to pull off as well because there's no national, there's no international regulations to stop this or to, to, to say that you can't lie on packaging generally. I mean, you can't lie on like ingredients lists or more specific things, but because greenwashing is a relatively new concept, it only came, it started around, it was, I think it was coined in like the 1980s, um, that they really don't, haven't put um, any procedures in place to kind of protect the individual and the consumer and so because of that so many companies are doing it it's so widespread and again feeding on from that we are now generation z i would say probably and um so committed to living you know sustainable lifestyles people it's it's a huge social trend now to be more vegan to be more um aware of what you're eating what you're consuming um and consume and companies are just playing into that so Another question for you guys to throw at you. Would you say that you would, you um, are, as a consumer, are dedicated to living sustainably? Or would you say that you would want to try to? My partner and I have um, started kind of homesteading. So we have pigs and and turkeys and and laying hens and things that make us um, more sustainable. But at the same time, we're still... I don't know. We we eat a lot from our from our animals, but we're also shopping at the grocery store just as much. It's not like they're losing our business. Um, but say if we went into some major lockdown for the pandemic, we we would have food <laughs> uh, to sustain us. But I don't know if that's a, uh, from a result 
um, of the marketing tactics of like, green companies or not. So you've got a lot more extreme than I think than most consumers. Like you've, you've got your own chickens. But um, okay, so saying that, okay, let's say that we're all here. I said the same thing. I was like, yeah, I, I'd say I'm interested in being more sustainable. Can you name a brand that's a leader in sustainability? I mean, Patagonia does good work with um, like reusing clothes and recycling uh, materials and things. Okay, so you guys are a lot more active than I am. When I heard this in the pod in a podcast, I was like, oh my God, I cannot think of anything at all. And I'm with a lot of people actually, because they did this study in New Zealand and eight, out to, eight to nine out of 10 New Zealanders said that they were committed to um, a sustainable lifestyle. But then seven out of 10 of those people were unable to name a brand that was a leader in sustainability. And I think that spoke a lot to greenwashing because it was saying, well, they go into a shop and they just believe what the company has told them. If the company tells them that it's green, then they, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy with that. And there's nothing wrong in that. I don't think there's anything wrong there. But it's just interesting to see that we're very um, easily manipulated. Not you guys, obviously, because you seem to name a lot more than I did. I had to research it for a while and I found one called Eco Store that's supposedly really good. But who knows at this point, they tell you what you want you to hear. But yeah, at, in that study that I, um, I was looking at, they were, they, um, one of them, of those seven out of 10 people that weren't able to name a brand, the other three out of 10, the brands that they named seemed to be a little interesting. So one of the biggest ones that they named were BP, which you wouldn't really think of as being sustainable. I mean, I wouldn't, but apparently they are. Um, they're not but um, people seem to think they were because they they did a whole rebranding where they made their symbol you know how it looks like a little lotus flower kind of they rebranded and said that they were committed to sustainability and if you go onto their website actually they have a whole little paragraph about sustainability and tell me if you understand any of this this is their public facing global website and they speak they have about um about what they want to be doing to make themselves more sustainable. This is what they say. The world needs more energy, but produced and used in cleaner, better ways. This is reflected in our strategies to grow advantaged oil and gas in the upstream, market-led growth in the downstream, pursuing local carbon growth opportunities and modernizing the group. It also informs how we work. I have two main issues and one of them was that they pushed the responsibility onto, onto the consumer every time. It's as if we, as the as the, as the people who are victims in this are being forced to try and, and think longer and harder about what we're buying when really shouldn't there just be better regulations on what you're selling to us? They didn't tie themselves to any targets. They didn't say exactly what they were going to do. So if it came in, in a future time, whenever, if, they were to be, if they were to be held to account, they, was, they could come back and say, well, we didn't say that we were going to do anything. We just said we believed in that and that was going to be our new ethos. So it's really vague and fluffy. There's no details there. There's no numbers. And I think that's what's really interesting is that they, they're now going to benefit from this, from putting this on their sustainability page. They're going to increase their profits because people are going to look at it and think, oh, yeah, 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 they're, they're doing whatever they can, really, because all they've done is put some big words in that no one can really understand unless you've done a business degree, which can't say any of us have. So it's just funny to me how they sort of, all, like Emily said, they always push the blame onto you as if you're not smart enough to understand what you're doing. So we're going to push on what we want to put on to you. So yeah, leading from that, the two main issues, I'm just 
technology all the time. Two main issues um, I came from this was one, the, uh, let me talk about the individual one first, um, was the individualist approaches that they point, pointing the fingers to us. And another one was um, the commodification of environmentalism. They're using the environmental movement and our beliefs in making this world a better place for their own self-interest and to further their own profit. And it's, an, it's this idea of corporate power and climate justice. We live in a world, I will always revert back to this, but we live in a world that puts corporate profit above the interest of ordinary people because profit drives our economy. And we cannot conceive an economy that's not driven by profit or based on continuous growth. So when we speak of climate change, it's always coupled with the talk of balancing environmental protection with economic growth. We can't see environmental sustainability in its own right as one goal. We have to see it with economic growth and we have to see it as us um, making um, changes to us to um, economic to let me say that let me word that better so it's it's about us making um forgotten the word you know what it we have to make concessions as environmentalists for better profit of economies because we're living in a capitalist society where we have where we we are encouraged day in and day out that money is what drives the world and if we're not making any money as a society, then we're not moving forward. We're not successful. We're not civilized. And it always goes back to this colonial concept of what um, makes us and the global north better than the global south. Profit in this way. So, um, yeah. It, and then what comes from this is, is, is because of this balancing of um, economic protection and um, sorry, uh, environmental protection and economic growth you come up with these words these kind of fluffy words like green growth or clean growth where if economic if environmental sustainability is mentioned at all it's within the context of economic growth and of remaining inside a competitive global free market so you can work towards environmental um environmental sustainability but only when you're still competing as a profitable company and you're and you're still maintaining that air of um, economic growth so the concern again profit over people over the environment which I guess is our, is what we are standing for um, and there's no responsibility there taken by the global north either because most of these countries are coming from the global north um, and they're imposing their view on the global south and there was an interesting quote that I found uh, from one of the articles it was quite I couldn't really paraphrase it in any way, so I feel like let's just go for it. It says, not a syllable is given to the notion that for the global north, there must be degrowth, or that for the global south, there must be economic development that allows those countries to break free of Western-imposed poverty and reach fair living standards while avoiding growth and more destruction of the earth. That's tricky, but not impossible when we remove the profit motive. And it all comes back to profit and power. Profit, I know I keep saying these words again, but under the totality of capitalism, environmental sustainability is not viable because environmental sustainability would mean that companies would have to cut, would have to cut back on their profit to help the environment. And they're not gonna wanna do that because that's all, because we're encouraging them to think for their own self-interest and their own self-interest will only ever be pure profit. So yeah. It leads to, so then that what happens in that is greenwashing. So it leads to this normality of greenwashing as 
as a justified concept for companies to cover their missteps and present themselves as more environmentally friendly, more dedicated to sustainability than they actually are just to increase their profits. And um, because we're so concentrated on those profits, it encourages further unethical practices, which will lead to, say, fast fashion, um, abuses of indigenous people, because at the end of the day, so long as you have a big company like Amazon, for example, Jeff Bezos and his treatment of um, workers is widely known. And yet we still buy from Amazon a lot of the time because it's easy and um, we know them to be a big profitable industry, a big profitable company. Sorry. Um, an example of this actually was when the um, greenwashing movement started in the 1980s. It came about um, from an undergrad student actually who coined the term, but the first sort of case of it was from Chevron and they commissioned a series of television and print ads showing the public how dedicated they were to the environment and the campaign I think was called Tilted People Do and it showed the Chevron employees protecting bears and butterflies and turtles and all these lovable animals and it was so it was such a, a resounding success um, in terms of adverts such that they it even won an Effie advertising award and they weren't doing anything that was any different to what they had always been doing but because they put bears and, and animals on their um, adverts people now seem to think that they were doing things to help wildlife and it wasn't e I mean this case was even used in a uh, Harvard Business School to say look how great this model is that they're sort of putting out there which is just further encouraging this this practice which is ridiculous and yet it's the world we live in so yeah, there's no international regulations to stop. But I guess that's the, that's the positive to take from it is maybe as a global justice movement, we need to push or lobby towards more regulations on um, products. But again, it's, it's very difficult to do so living in a society which we've never been able to really do that before. I mean, ad advertising is so ingrained in our um, media already. Um, and there are so many um, liberties that companies take with that. So yeah, the main thing that I got from that was um, a quote saying, in, uh, capitalism is incompatible with life on earth. So I know it's, it's a bit of a bitter point to greenwashing, but what can you say? It's capitalism. I'm going a bit of a Marxist rant here. I don't mean it like that, but yeah, it's, it's so much harder for companies to have a USP of environmentalism than it is for them to have a USP of exploitation, because that's what we encourage and that's what our values are. At the end of the day, that's what we stand for. Um, so, yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, anyone have any points to add to that before I move on? Yeah, I was just mm, thinking about a reply to this rhetorical question if cap capitalism is uh, compatible with the uh, are sustainable living on earth and from a philosophical perspective i think that we we could recall what jonas was saying that in order to protect uh lives and environments uh we should highlight the importance of fear because fear affects our uh, behavior much more than our uh, rationality, our brain. And I think that the aim of capitalism is just to make us feel like we are superheroes, just because by profit 
we can uh, uh, supersede all the human limits. And that's, that's interesting because if we, uh, by the capitalism ideal, we hide uh, fear, maybe we cannot use it as Jonas was suggesting in order to preserve the environment as much as possible. Definitely. I mean, I was just thinking it reminded me of that quote where I think um, they say um, fear drives more change than love ever will. Although I do think that was Stalin, so maybe don't. But, you know, it's it still holds true. I guess one or the other extreme, really, at this point. Um, so, yeah, the other thing I was thinking about greenwashing was um, the issues of the movement themselves against greenwashing. So there's a lot of um, articles that I read were talking about um, how again the onus is always put on the individual and and they were putting it on the individual they were saying well we need to as a consumer we need to be better when we think we need to buy more organic we need to um, read the ingredients list a lot better to make sure that we're not sort of buying things with palm oil in or anything that might sort of um, aid climate change or uh, not climate change sorry aid um, that might be detrimental to the environment and I did have a bit of an issue with that when I was reading that because I thought well, what about people that can't afford to do that? It's expensive to buy organic a lot of the time because you're sort of, it's time consuming, you're going in, products are a lot more expensive when they are actually sustainable. Um, and so there's an expectation of privilege, I think, from the movement in that it assumes that you'll be able to afford your time and your money to dedicating your life to more sustainable living which a lot of people don't have. And it, again, it, it's very privileged coming from the north, global north as well, because if this is a global movement that's being imposed on the global south, um, are you going to expect the global south to also follow these um, concepts of change that maybe they can't? It's, it's, you're, you're, it's, um, they can't do that. I mean, if they don't have access to it or if it's not a, an aspect of the movement that they really care to indulge in because it doesn't affect them as much especially in the global south where sort of greenwashing isn't as big of an issue as it is with us so yeah I thought it was quite exclusionary and a privileged point to come from to always put the blame on the consumer um so who should the owners be on I mean we should be pushing more I think for the companies to do better but maybe I guess to stand for the movement as well they they um a lot of organizations are trying to put the um put the pressure on companies but it can be difficult because they have so much power compared to us so i guess what they're saying a lot of the times is just do whatever you can do and in that sense buy as much as you can sustainably so i get where they're coming from but i just i thought it was a bit privileged to say that um so yeah and I think the main problem here that we should take away from this is it shouldn't be that hard to navigate through brands to see which ones really appeal to you. It should be quick and easy, and it's not. And that's not an issue that we can really, I guess, approach head on if we're constantly taking it from an individual perspective. I guess maybe it's like a question of education as well. Um, I don't know what you think about that given the different contexts, we can't really generalise, but um, whether people are even aware of, of um, what they're doing to, to harm or to protect the environment. Yeah, I mean, whether how can you blame a consumer that doesn't know that they're, they're being wronged? 
maybe it's the government's the responsibility to educate or, or is it the companies? Who knows, really? I mean, yeah, you can say, I mean, government regulations, I think, is definitely important. They haven't got anything. So maybe EU regulations would be important internationally or maybe creating. So I know they have a climate change act that they recently put in place, which um, has regulations for carbon emissions for companies. But they haven't done the same thing for other environmental aspects, which um, is interesting, actually, because the EU had a law that had um, quite detailed um, climate change clauses in it. This wasn't relating to greenwashing, but it was related to wider environmentalism. And because of Brexit, obviously, we're leaving that. So they are drafting an environmental bill to put in place. But the problem with that bill is it doesn't have any uh, remuneration clause. It, it, it means that they um, it doesn't have anything which, which would stop Britain from going back on EU regulations. So we could, in essence, be going um, backwards instead of moving forwards and companies aren't going to have um, as much pressure put on them. They will do with the Climate Change Act, but in other aspects, say wildlife and um, sustainability, they're not going to have as many um, protection. I mean, we as individuals aren't going to have, sorry, the environment isn't going to have as many protections. Um, so, yeah, that was interesting. That I found that Brexit is going to have a huge impact on that if um, the environmental bill does go forward without any amendments. So fast fashion, guys. I, I don't think you're ready for this jelly at this point. Um, so what is fast fashion? Well, we all kind of know the term, I think. I mean, let me know if you don't. But um, I sort of broke it down into three concepts. Well, I didn't. An article did. But it was um, fast production, fast purchase and fast wear. So fast production is obviously the making process, the outsourcing of labor to the global south. Fast purchase is how there's a culture of demand for cheap um, clothing that we, we, um, that we kind of turn out at a high rate. And then fast wear is how we throw it away so quickly. So when you look at like Primark clothing, it doesn't last that long, but because of the constantly turning trends and our culture that we've created of, of constantly purchasing, purchasing, purchasing this consumerist attitude, we are always buying new things. So it doesn't really matter that the, the stuff doesn't last. It's more about quantity over quality. Um, and then fast wear, obviously throwing it away and it ending up at a landfill site, which is horrible. So I thought I'd focus more on fast production because that's where I sort of came across the main issues because I focused on um, racism in the fast fashion industry mainly because that was just the hole that I fell down I don't know maybe as a person of color I'm just more in tune with that um, but then maybe not so let's look at that so um, environmental racism again like I think it was Rosetta and Grace and you were talking about that how it sort of the disproportionate impact of environmental hazards on people of color to keep costs low, companies often sort of abuse environmental racism to their advantage. So in this case, they will outsource labor to cheap factories in the global south, um, paying them sort of pittance to um, make their clothes for them that they then ship back. So there's no real benefit to that country. It's just for that company and that um, it really all it does is it provides jobs as they would argue. Um, and it's not even really the global south actually. There was a recent case where um, um, I can't remember the company actually, but it was a company in Leicester and they were charging immigrant workers £3.50 an hour 
to uh, make their clothes, to manufacture their clothes for them in a factory. Oh, that was crazy because that's way beneath, obviously, the um, minimum wage. But because they were um, temporary workers or they were immigrant workers, they didn't, they weren't really aware of the process. So the company was easily able to abuse them. Um, so yeah, it's not just the global south, but obviously, it's, you know, the big majority there. And so leading that back to racism, I was reading an article and it was about an African-American woman um, talking about her experiences of fashion in America in particular because of the history of slavery and how sort of that industry of picking cotton was um, essentially the same thing as what's happening now, really. I mean, you've got um, you've got people from one community using um, um, labor in another community and abusing their power they can to um, create clothes at a really low cost or no cost um, in some in obviously related to slavery so she sort of spoke about it how throughout history black and brown labor has been exploited and devalued and today fast fashion companies continue to legally get away with paying garment workers low uh, low low wages Um, they subject them to horribly poor working conditions Um, recently there was a factory that fell down as it was um, in Bangladesh because it was in substandard conditions and the company took no responsibility in paying any amount of um, damages to the families because they said, oh, it wasn't our fault. We were doing it still by the standards of the um, country, which is appalling because if they were to have those same um, workers in the global north, you would never, you you know, there'd be such outrage as to why is... um, this happening and and, but it's not because you know they're people of color so (laughs) my bitter (laughs) experience as a person of color is just coming out here so um yeah another example would be um recently brands have actually cancelled a lot of orders due to covid which means that workers are not even getting paid for wages um for work that they've done they might have already done it and so that's going to be incredibly detrimental to them so um yeah, people of colour are always and have forever been doing the work while white CEOs seem to reap the benefits. Um, and these, this model, I think, of fast fashion has definitely been um, adapted from colonial structures in the past. To link it back to sort of what we've been studying in global justice, um, this colonial totality has forever perpetuated this standard of exploiting people of colour as workers. Um, to create um, power in the global north or to increase economic growth to bring it back to capitalism. So, um, yeah, the model was adapted. Uh, yeah, so those, and those effects of racism obviously are seen strongly in fast It keeps uh, strongly in fast fashion because it keeps the global north oblivious to the effects of fast fashion, um, the fast fashion addiction to the global south. Um, and because it's relying so heavily on people of color you um you you are constantly keeping the global south down because they don't they aren't able to increase their own economic growth because they're always working for the global north so just it just it just aids in this constant rhetoric of the global south being less than the global north um so yeah so an interesting thing i thought of to come up with was looking at fast fashion as a term of modern colonialism I hadn't seen an article about this. I'm sure it's probably already been written about. I couldn't find one. But I thought 
that it definitely is there this presence of um, cheap labor and poor working conditions being outsourced to people of color to further capitalist goals um, comes and then justifying it by saying you're creating jobs when we're you're better off than you were before as the global north is always saying to the global south that you're you're better off than you were before we've we've made we've given you factories we've given you jobs we've we've increased your economic growth we've invested in you and it's it's perpetuating such a narrative that the global south needs those investments from global corporations when those corporations really are just exploiting and abusing those people for their own profit yes maybe they've created jobs but what is the bigger overall impact and really what you're doing is you're taking those those areas in that country that could be could have been used to benefit that country in itself and you've you've exported it to another country you've you know you're outsourcing your work to them and they're working for you now so that country in essence if you're doing it enough is working for you and really how is that any different from slavery I'm, I'm just from the past from colonialism I mean they slavery was essentially unpaid labor for the production of resources excluding obviously all the gross violations of human rights but if we're just looking at essentially what slavery was it was unpaid labor and the U.S. today wouldn't be such a superpower if it wasn't for the excruciating work from the 35 million slaves under forced servitude. And really what, what it boils down to is um, there was a concept, um, I think Marx coined the concept where he said, um, no superpower has ever really been a superpower if it wasn't for oppression in some way of mass levels of people. Um, America, it was obviously the slave trade. You've got Russia and their use of gulags and um, the abuses in Kazakhstan and, and communist regimes in general. Um, so it's always been this concept of abusing mass groups of people for the benefit of um, a, a privileged few. And this is just perpetuated by our capitalist society of appreciating success in terms of profit. So in terms of America, we sort of accept them as a superpower now because we say oh well it was it was in the past and we ignore the systemic abuses that got them there and that still continue to this day um they're still imposing their ideologies the global north is still imposing their ideologies on the global south um and that's of profit and power for their own profit and power and it's never going to stop we've just coined a new word from it for it and that's fast fashion um which I'm not saying that obviously that's wrong to do, but I just think history has a funny way of repeating itself in every way. And unless we really learn from these issues and we and we understand how systemic and how endemic it is in our society, we're really never going to work in any way against that to be a bit ideological there. But yeah, our, our society relishes in profit and power. That's what that's what we do. You know, we that's how we measure our success. It, it brings it back to actually um, when we were reading, I think when we were studying in um, week two of our course, um, a piece by Nandi when she was talking about history and how history is created in a very scientific and objective way that we see the world in one through one lens. And I think this is the same. We see the world through our capitalist lens to say that we judge civilization, we judge success by power and by profit and if you achieve those things then really we're going to accept your missteps and your misfortunes and the misfortunes that you've created because they aren't injustices really it's just 
happenstance of the business that you're in. So really, what is that telling us? That we're, we're, we're what it's telling. Well, what I thought it was telling us was that there aren't any morals there. We're going to say that we're focused on what happened, not what should happen, and we're ignoring any any ethical guidelines that we may have for the benefit of profit. To say, well, that and what it does is it it it. it it's really telling to our priorities as a society about what we value the most. And we don't value the other in this case. We don't value the consumer who are being victims to greenwashing. We don't value people of color who are victims historically to abuses of unpaid labor. We don't value ourselves as ethical beings. We value profit. And as sad as that is, <laughs> I think it's, it, it's interesting because much of human rights discourse will always fall back into a practice of capitalist domination. So, yeah, we're constructing this global imperialist perspective that will always justify the totality in a way. So I thought I'd just briefly talk about... Um... Gosh, it's hard to begin, isn't it? <laughs> Extinction Rebellion um, and Standing Rock as two examples of movements that have um, differently engaged with climate justice. So Extinction Rebellion call for a change in our democratic system. Um, and they suggest that by allowing people to vote on climate issues, um, by educating people and then allowing them to vote uh, in citizens' juries rather than allowing um, the MPs to make all the decisions, I think, um, that climate justice will actually be achieved. So they're not directly requesting change that would, uh, legal change or procedural change that would um, protect the environment. They're just requesting that people can make those decisions for themselves more. Um, so I thought this was interesting because what kind of conception of justice is that? Is it, um, is it a political view or is it a moral view? Are they saying that we all have a responsibility to the climate which we just innately feel? Or are they kind of questioning the political method of um, deciding? Well, they seem to be doing both, really. Um, so, so they seem to be engaging different conceptions of justice uh, according to the conceptions that we've studied anyway. Those were um, referenced by Nagel and other people who engaged with those two ideas, moral versus political. Um, so it's just worth thinking about, I think, when we look at movements, what is their idea of climate justice? Because they've probably all got different ideas. Um, Standing Rock, for example, they say water is life. So it's not only that we have a right to water, but water has a right, surely, to exist because water is life. So um, some women in, in that tribe or several tribes they take on the role of protecting water because um women are thought to be the source of life and water is life so that's a kind of is that an incommensurable view with our conception of of water <laughs> and so our, our knowledge system and the justice um 
the perspectives on justice that emerge from that knowledge system or not, can we really hear what the Indigenous people are saying when they say water is life or not? Um, how could they teach us to understand them? That's my cat playing with his toy. <laughs> so, <laughs> amidst all this complexity, <laughs> it's really enjoying that. Surely we must have to account for different kinds of protest and different kinds of possibility. Um, Extinction Rebellion did protests in London where they um, they became water, they said. They sort of spread out all over the city and the police arrested many of them. But then it was decided in court that actually they hadn't broken the law because they weren't in one place. And the definition in law of a public assembly that it's it's happening in one place but because they'd taken on this new sort of strategy of going everywhere they hadn't actually and the police had probably arrested them unlawfully so that just shows how a metaphor can actually result in a challenge to the justice system through protest um standing rock they suggest that they could educate us um, that they could sort of relieve us from our suffering, um, from our disconnect from nature. But how could they actually? So if you look at Polge, who suggests that it's our responsibility to redistribute, well, probably to do more than that. Um, it's our responsibility to help those who, who we otherwise perpetuate injustices against. Um, these indigenous communities, some people in, in those communities seem to be saying, actually, it's our responsibility to teach those people who've claimed our resources how to live better. So again, I guess it all depends on where you're coming from, which perspective you take. So that brings us to the end of our very first episode of Injustice Talks. And I'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Celia Huggins from the Global Sustainable Development Programme at Warwick for meeting with us in preparation for this discussion today and giving us so much of his time and answering all of our questions on climate justice. And then I would like to give a big thank you to you for listening and to let you know that there will be another episode coming out next week which will be on health, nature, disease and COVID-19. So hopefully see you then.